Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the artist Winfred Rembert died last year. Born in Cuthbert, Georgia in 1945, his work has been compared to the art of Jacob Lawrence and Horace Pippin. Unlike them, he honed his skills in prison. Rembert came from a family of field laborers. He got involved in civil rights work as a teen and was arrested after fleeing a demonstration. He survived a near lynching at the hands of law enforcement and spent seven years on chain gangs. Rembert, who always affirmed he had been unjustly tried and imprisoned, told his story in Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. As the title suggests, the trauma he experienced never left him. For instance, he went through periods where he couldn't sleep next to his wife Patsy, or fear of hurting her as he lashed out in his sleep. Nonetheless, Rembert was able to channel his creativity into a lasting artistic legacy. Winfred Rembert's story is just one example of the inhumanity and prejudice that plague our justice and incarceration systems, but it's a visceral one. These reflections on his life will likely give any listener an uncomfortable sense of the fear and trauma he endured. It may also give you a deep appreciation for the remarkable courage and wisdom he displayed in forging a path forward beyond the demons that haunted him. In the foreword to Chasing Me to My Grave, author and activist Brian Stevenson writes, quote, Rembert's art expresses the legacy of slavery, the trauma of lynching, and the anguish of racial hierarchy and white supremacy, while illuminating a resolve to fight oppression and injustice. He has the ability to reveal truths about the human struggle that are transcendent, to evoke an understanding of human dignity that is broad and universal." Unquote. Tufts University philosophy professor Erin Kelly co-authored Rembert's memoir. She is joined here by Rembert's widow, Patsy, and actor Dion Graham, who moderates the conversation and reads excerpts from Chasing Me to My Grave. Graham calls the event a celebration of and a musing on Rembert's life and work. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this event on January 18th. Please note, this recording contains themes and descriptions of an adult nature. Here, Elliott Bay's Rick Simonson introduces the program. We are delighted um, that you are here with us tonight, and we're actually very honored that we are doing the program we're about to do, and that is... um, we are celebrating the life and work of the artist Winfred Rembert, uh, which we as people get to see and read um, in this beautifully done book, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. And I'll say a book that was published this last fall. And I'll say it right at the outset, the publisher of this book, the New York publisher, 
Bloomsbury is a very good publisher, but I've never seen him do a book like this with his commitment to the quality of the of reproducing the art and and with the more complicated parts that go into the layout and things with text and the and the artwork and and it's um, it's usually art book publishers do that kind of thing, but they knew this book um, deserves and and is is finding uh, an audience beyond what usually happens with art books. It's a book with a vividly told and written story um, narrated by Mr. Winfred Rembert, who passed away um, less than a year ago in March of last year. And he, in in um, relating this story, did so with Erin Kelly, who's with us tonight. She is a um, professor of philosophy, uh, specializing particularly in the areas of criminal justice and um, punishment at, um, at uh, Tufts University in the Boston area. And she herself is uh, the author of a recent book called The Limits of Blame, um, Rethinking Punishment and Responsibility. So she helped craft this um, um, story of, of Will Winfred Rembert's life, born in Georgia in 1945, and um, coming to his artwork, this remarkable artwork you'll see images of, um, of well along in life. And a part of well along in life, and very much a part of this evening also, is Patsy Rembert, who is um, Winfred's widow and, and very much her own figure and person, as you will get to hear tonight in as they um, talk about Winfred and his work and and even will probably touch on what's happening um, with her son, um, her and uh, Winfred's son, um, Mitchell, who himself is an exhibiting artist, recently had a show just conclude um, in, in New York at a gallery. Karen's will put information on that so you can go online and see his work as well, M Mitchell Rembert. We're also um, delighted and, and really honored again that also making this evening happen and, and all the ways it will. Uh, we're joined by um, award-winning actor, Dion Graham. Um, and when I say actor, he is known for his roles on stage. He's known uh, his roles on screen, which I think for some viewers, the wire will be one of the, one of the sources that will um, trigger um, awareness and memory. But he also is a much honored and uh, awarded narrator of, of texts on, uh, on, that are um, audio books and includes, and he did the audio edition of Chasing Me to My Grave. So he will be really kind of, I think, moderating this and kind of conducting uh, the conversation that Patsy and Aaron will have. He will also read from some of the text, which um, is, is beautifully, I mean, it's Winfred's voice, but Aaron is, has made work to get that on the page. Um, I also say that when, Winfred Wembert's own work, you know, which won numerous awards, was the subject. He was he and his work were the subject of two award-winning documentaries, All Me and Ashes to Ashes. And um, Brian Stevenson, who wrote the foreword of this book, um, has also been a champion and advocate of of Mr. Rembert and his work. Um, so thank you again, everyone. You are in for um, quite an evening. I I know. Thank you all again for being here. Please give good virtual attention and applause to Winfred Rembert's amazing work, and to Patsy Rembert, Aaron Kelly, and Dion Graham. Thank you all. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, um, I just want to welcome all of you um, to this moment that I'm going to consider a, a celebration, uh, a meeting, a um, amusing on um, 
the life and inspiration and work of Winfred. And I, um, I just think it's a special moment. So we're all glad to be here and we're glad that you're, you're here as well. So why don't I uh, kick things off by uh, sharing a little bit from the preface um, of the book. I will say that it was um, a distinct honor for me to bring this to life um, for Winfred and for Patsy um, and for Aaron. Um, the work on this magnificent and the um, channel flows uh, with Winfred and Patsy. So here we go. Writing this book has been a lifelong dream of mine. Ever since I was released from prison, I've wanted to tell the story of me. I left Cuthbert, Georgia in chains. It was 1967. I got locked up as a nobody. Prison made sure I was still a nobody when in 1974, I was released. And some people in, in Cuthbert never knew what happened to me. I want people especially the people I knew, to understand what happened and why I spent seven years on the chain gang. Even though I want people to understand what happened to me was not so long ago. And even though I have wanted to tell my story for years, I was afraid to draw attention to what happened in Cuthbert, Georgia during my lifetime and to me. I was worried about whether people would believe me or care and whether the real people I named might in some way or other retaliate. I wasn't sure how to talk about my search for my mother's love or the bond I feel with Patsy. But my time in this world is up. So there is no better time. This may be the perfect time. That's Winfred Rembrandt, September 2020. So having shared that, um, let me ask you, Patsy, is there anything you'd like to say uh, coming right out of that? Any comments you'd like to make? Well, the, it's not hard to talk about him, but it's hard to stop talking about him. Mm. And the suffering that he endured in his life and the trauma that he went through. That book in the title is true, Chase Him to My Grave. He had to carry the weight of the abuse and mistreatment that he received at the hands of people who thought they were doing right. I knew they was wrong and didn't care. You pick it, either one. Mm -hmm. It weighed on him every day and every night. I don't know he how he found the courage and the will not to hate, or not to be an angry, bitter man. He was so sweet and loving and kind. I just don't understand it. But uh, as time went on, he finally decided that wasn't something 
we had been married over five years before he decided that he would even mention to me what had happened to me. I didn't know. I just knew he was having trouble sleeping. And this is the kind of torture uh, that followed him until he died. Now, for someone to be treated so horribly and thought that it was the right thing to do, that it followed him to his grave. I don't understand how people could be so mean because when they hung him up in that tree, they were going to kill him. It was going to do all the things. Killing him was not going to be enough. But, uh, you know, I don't want to seem harsh or cause any. Uh, I don't find any of that overly harsh. You're merely telling the truth. Yes, I'm telling the truth. His life is a reflection of what's going on today. It is a reflection. The things that happened to him in the 60s are happening right now. The only difference is the road. But the same abuse. I wanted to ask you, excuse me for interrupting you. I just wanted to ask you because it's so rich what you're sharing with us. But for those in the audience who may be less familiar with his actual life experience before, maybe you could um, let them know more specifically the things that, that were chasing him to his grave, uh, so to speak. One you just touched on with the, the near lynching that happened, um, but there might be a few other things to share that you think are important. You want to hear about how they, um, he was, I don't know whether I should tell that part of the story before it's read, but I, I will go into it in the way that um, when he got locked up and why he got locked up. He um, was part of a protest in America's Georgia for Charlie Hopkins, you can look it up, who had shot a white guy and killed him in retaliation from them killing a black kid. And uh, at that rally, that marching, Wilford had to run for his life. He ran down the alley and uh, he stole a car get away from them. They were behind him with a shotgun and the guys were shooting. And he got away and got the cusp and they caught him and put him in jail. They had him in jail for over a year with no charges. Mm-hmm. And he decided that uh, uh, he wouldn't. they wouldn't let nobody see him and they wouldn't let him out. So he decided that he'd do something to, in order to just upset him enough to let him talk to somebody. So he stopped up the commode, the jail flooded, and the deputy sheriff come back down, Mr. Lee, to beat him. And he said he was prepared to take that beating, but it just got more than he could bear. And uh, he wrestled with him and got his gun away from him and locked him up in there. Now, he went to some people, civil rights people, that he thought would uh, help him. 
was nobody there but the wife. And she made Wimple comfortable and told him to sit. And she went in the next room and called the police. Now, you think about it. If you're in a room and you think you're in a place where you're going to be safe for just a few minutes, and you look out the window because he couldn't hear her, he called for her and she didn't answer. And when he looked out the curtain, he said he peeped out the curtain and the yard was full of white people. And they bust the door down and they beat him so unmerciful. Then they threw him in the truck of a car and they took him for a ride. This was a ride that he was going to never come back from. But somehow or another, uh, like I told him, they... God had sent an angel to watch over him to make sure he stayed alive. When they were preparing to uh, castrate him and hang him and shoot him and kill him, this guy come up, he said all he could see was the ring, wing tip shoes that he had on in a brown suit, saved him and told him to take him on back to town because they could do something better with this person. They, they could, he had a better way of showing you that you didn't have to kill him to get your point across. So that's how you ended up in jail. It's sometimes difficult to think about what he went through and how he was treated with no one to speak for him. They would allow no one to speak for him. So when he received his time, he received time for robbing the man of his gun. And he said, when he told the judge he was going to kill me, he told him, you should have let him kill you. And um, after that portion of him getting the time, 27 years, he said he never even saw papers. He don't know exactly. He just know what they told him. He had 27 years and they put him on the chain gang. Now, Aaron, you can comment on if you like about the things that he shared with you. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really really good segue, Patsy. Thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, though it's really it's quite a story, quite a life story to tell and to share with us. And I think it's great um, to shift over to Aaron for a little bit. Yes, Aaron, please tell us um, how how this came about. Uh, tell us about writing the memoir with Winfred and, you know, how did you meet him? How did the project come about? Tell yeah, us about that. I'd love to talk about that. Let me share my screen so that I can show you some slides. <clears throat> Starting with One. the picture of Winfred. This is a picture Wonderful. of Winfred. Wonderful. He, uh, from this photo, he's an intense person with some life experience, and you might have the sense that he has a story to tell. Um, and I certainly got that sense when I met him. Um, he's also a person with a wicked sense of humor, a very charismatic personality, and a very uh, who was a very welcoming person to me, um, getting to know me and sharing his story with me. This is the first painting of Winfred's that I ever saw. I came across it by chance online. It's called All Me, and we'll get into the topic of that a little bit more in a few minutes. 
But as you can see, it's a picture of, of prisoners. I found it very striking, very interesting, the kind of both the abstract quality of it and the concreteness. I thought that that tension was really interesting. Um, I read a little bit about Winfred online, uh, found out about him and learned that he lived in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was at the time writing a book about criminal justice. And I was very interested in an artist who would paint a picture about prisoners. And I learned that he had himself been incarcerated. Um, I arranged to go to New Haven to meet him. And he consented to my interviewing him. And we talked about, about this painting. We talked about his experience in prison. Uh, his views about the criminal justice system. He said he didn't see much justice in the criminal justice system and that his experience of incarceration had affected his whole life. Um, he was very open in talking about these things. We talked then and subsequently about these paintings. Um, and I thought his perspective on the paintings was just fascinating and insightful. He said about this painting, you can't make the chain gang look good in any way besides putting it in art. Those black and white stripes look good on canvas. People can't tell what they really are, what they are until they get up close. They don't recognize those stripes as people until they take a real good look. That was my goal, to put it down so you couldn't understand it until you take a real up close look. That tells you something about prison life. When you look at it from the outside, you can't see what's going on. But when you're up close, you realize what you're up against. I found his remarks very insightful. I wanted to hear more of his story. I kept in touch with him. And as I got to know him a little bit better, he told me that he was interested in telling his life story as a book. I wanted to hear the story. He was looking for a writer. We decided to try working together. And so in March of 2018, I went to his home and we had the first interview. Um, I went home to Boston. I wrote up parts of the interview. I came back to New Haven and read them to Winfred, which jogged more memories. He expanded his points. And we continued in this cycle of the interview, me writing them up, me reading out loud the pages to him and, um, and his elaborating and continuing with the story. So after two years, we produced this book. It was about two years of interviews at his house. Um, and he read the, you know, he, he was involved in the writing of the entire book. Um, I read the whole thing back to him some parts many times because he was so interested in thinking more about some of these episodes of his life and expanding on them. Um, so it was an honor and a privilege to get to know him and to learn about his life, the importance of his life, and his perspective on it. And I wanted to mention that in case some of the listeners, viewers, don't know this, Winfred's paintings are on leather. He tools the leather, carves it, textures it with his tools. Um, so it has a kind of sculptural quality, and then he dyes it. So this is the undyed version of the painting I just showed you, the all me painting that we were talking about. And here's another version of that painting. Um, also very, I think very striking, very powerful um, picture about prisoners um, and his own experience. And I thought 
Diana, I could ask you to read a few pages from the chapter on the chain gang, which sure. will take us a little bit more into this painting and the experience behind it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I'm not gonna give it much preamble because I think it'll, it'll be speaking for itself. He was at Morgan that I first introduced, I was first introduced to the sweat box. I'd never seen a sweat box before. When they put you in a sweat box, you can't stand up and you can't sit down. You're in a crouch. You can't see out. It's dark outside except for daylight coming in through the cracks. And it's real hot in there, sweating hot. They keep you in there anywhere from three days to seven. You use the bathroom on yourself. When they're ready to let you out, they pull you out, strip you naked, put you in a little space with a fence where they turn a water hose on you, like a fire hose, to clean you. And they didn't have to have a reason to put you in the sweat box. I mean, they would find some reason, like if you were in the ditch and you weren't digging right, you weren't using the shovel like they thought you should, or you talked back. But their reason wasn't worth anything. They just wanted to be cruel to you. I've been through so much in my life before I even went to the chain gang. Let me tell you, I can take a lot of cruelty and survive. I figured that if I had survived that lynching, I could survive anything they threw at me. But when I stood there in the sweat box, I was afraid I was gonna lose my mind. In the sweat box, your mind is talking to you constantly. I'm thinking, am I gonna really lose it? Am I broken? I remember being scared the guards might come and throw some gas in there and kill me. I'd never seen that happen, but there was always unexpected things happening. And I knew I was a guy that the administration didn't care too much about. But they didn't like my thoughts. Well. On the way to the sweat box with you, they would hit you with their gloves and things in front of everybody. But I didn't want the other inmates to see them doing that to me. So if I did something that made me think, I would be sent there. If I had disobeyed when I was working, or I didn't do something so to the guards liking, and I, well, I knew they were going to lock me up. I would go and stand beside the sweat box and wait for them to put me in. I wouldn't wait for the guards to come and get me. I wouldn't let them march me past the other inmates. After I did that three or four times. Yeah. One second, I just lost my page. Yeah, after I did that three or four times, the warden came out and said to me, nigga, get away from the sweat box. You can't predict what I'm gonna do. To the other guards, he said, that nigga's crazy. And guess what? I never went to the sweat box another day. I realized I couldn't be what the officials were expecting of me. You got to put that in your head so they can't break you. They want to break you. If you're not broken, they say you're crazy. That's what they decided I was. They called me a crazy nigga. The chain gang is one of the most ruthless places in the world. The state owns prisons, so there are rules and regulations, but the county owns the chain gang and there are no rules and regulations. 
The guys don't care what you do, so there's more pressure on you to be bad. Inmates put pressure on you to fight. They might approach you with one of their shanks, homemade knives that they would hide in their bunk, or they'll block you when it's time to go to the mess hall, or maybe they'll turn over your plate. When they do that, you got to jump on them right then and there. If you don't fight, you're going to get that all the time. You got to fight. And I mean, you really got to fight. You may be, you may have to draw blood. I never had a weapon. I'd use my hands and my feet. The knuckles on my left hand are, are rough, even today, because that was my punching hand. I also did a lot of kicking and stomping with my chain gang boots. If I get you down on the ground, you stomped. And it seemed to me the goal of the chain gang was to make you bad, to make you do bad things. That's the Winfrey I didn't want to be. I showed meanness as a survival tool. I, I would sometimes do crazy things to people. I had to go through a lot to show myself as somebody who couldn't be bullied. I would say things like, I might lose my life, but I'm not going to be bullied. And I would mean it. I had to take on all these personalities. I only wanted to be one of them, but the one I wanted to be, I couldn't be. There are probably more good guys on the chain gang than bad. Even the ones that tried to bully me were trying to hide the good side of themselves. There's a lot of demands on you as a prisoner on the chain gang. Hey, nigga, get over here with the shovel. Dig that pipe out. You have to do it or you, you go to the sweat box. And you have to answer in the manner that the guards want to hear rather than how you actually feel. You have to play a role that isn't really you. It's like slavery. Yeah, you have to meet all those demands and keep a, a sense of yourself as well. You don't want to be identified with any of the roles you have to play. So we, you're, you're all of them. It's like all of you and everybody else around you are all tied up into one. All me. That's how I painted it. Each person in the picture has a role to play. I didn't want to play any of the parts, but I had to be somebody. I couldn't walk around and be nobody. So I became all of them. It's like I was more than one person inside myself. In fact, I think if I hadn't decided to play the all me role on the chain gang, I wouldn't have made it. Taking that stance, all me, saved me. Everybody thought I was crazy. The guards and the inmates too. That nigga crazy. One thing is for sure. When the inmates think you're crazy, you can survive. They won't mess with you. And when officials think you're crazy, you'll never go to the sweat box. So thank you. That's um, that's an excerpt. Um, yeah, that's very powerful. Very very powerful stuff. Patsy, I want to ask you. Uh, can you share with us? Can you tell us how prison affected Winfred's life? How being there on the chain gang, like he was, and for the duration of time that he was. How did that affect his life? 
it, it affected his ability to get a job, a decent job. Um, you know, I'm going to describe Winford in the way that I saw him. Sometimes Winford would be so sweet and loving. And then sometimes I would catch him sitting, looking, staring, just out into space. And a couple of those times I'd ask him what's wrong, he wouldn't say anything. But uh, one day he finally, he told me, he said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I gotta take care of my family. He said, nobody will give me a chance. He said, I done been everywhere. I done worked everywhere. Nobody won't give me a chance because of one thing. I said, well, what is that, honey? He said, because I got a robbery charge on me. I said, a robbery charge? He said, yeah. They said, I robbed a man of his gun. He said, every time I go and fill out an application, I have to put on there what I done. He said, when they see that robbery, I don't get the job. He had to maneuver his way around to take care of his family. Everything he did wasn't up board, but he did what he thought he had to do to raise those eight kids we had. His life was a struggle, but he still found a way to, to make sure his children had fun and they had periods of laughter and joy in their life. And whatever they wanted to take part in, he found a way to manage to get the money that they needed to be able to participate. And he was, he was truly, truly a good man. And he wanted to be a good man. He didn't want to be the type of person that, that sometime he had to be in order to take care of us as a family, he didn't want me working outside the house while they were small. And he went out, I'm gonna tell you this, he went out for a job, a heavy equipment job. And this job, they needed somebody to tell them what to do. They needed a foreman. Wilford explained to the guy and showed him what he could do. And you know what he told him at the end of the day? He worked for him a whole hour. Told him he was too qualified. Mm. Now, when you've done all you can do, then you, go, you start doing other things. But uh, I knew he was a good man. He was a loving man, a beautiful father. And he went way beyond what I thought a man should have to do to take care of his family. But he was, did it. I wanted to ask you, was there, um, along with all of that, did you feel there were any ways in which his uh, sense of humor was enhanced <laughs> from, uh, from having had all that life experience and having to process that, like you were saying, and like he says himself about, you know, the, the roles he had to play. Yeah, I've uh, seen a few of them. Mm -hmm. You know, Wimpert, he would keep you laughing. He would keep you amused. He was always intriguing to listen to him. 
He always had something to teach you, uh, something you wanted to hear. He was that type of person. And he had a beautiful voice that I couldn't get enough of listening to him. And uh, a lot of folks loved him. They knew he was singing somewhere. He had a, a what you call groupies. Mm-hmm. They would come. If they knew he was singing at a church or somewhere, they were going to come to hear him. And, and then some of the places that he, he would sing would be on the corner, you know, with some guys, they'd get together. And people just loved him, loved him. I'm going to tell you this story, man. You, you're not, when we first got married, this is when I didn't understand that he had different personalities, but I've seen him. He come home, he don't see, he didn't smoke, he didn't drink. He did none of those things. One day he come home, he had a cigarette behind his ear, had a mask stem in his mouth. And I'm looking, who is this? <laughs> I told him, they asked me, how do we stay married so long? It's because I didn't know who I was married to one half the time. He'd come home, he'd be somebody else. But he was never abusive to me. But he kept me smiling. He kept me laughing when he was at home. But he, he really, uh, he could change up his personality sometimes. Absolutely. And he, he made think. you know what he did? I'm going to tell you this. He had a room for his kids. And he painted the wall white. Then he painted superheroes on the wall. He had um, a train that went up next to the wall, come down, and went across a car racing set. He did all of this. Then he had the, the uh, light that he would sit in the middle of the floor. And when it was time for him to go to bed and go to sleep, he would turn that light on and look like those superheroes was moving on the wall that he had actually painted on the wall. He, he, he was just a, oh, he was just fantastic. As he a was father. A, a kind he, of superhero himself. Yeah, he was a hero to his children, for sure. Mm-hmm. He was you, definitely a hero to his children. Can you tell me, dear, um, from your from your point of view, where does the title of the book come from? Why did why did why did you feel it was important to let it be known as that? Because he told me one day that he was gonna have those nightmares and have those uh, dreams until he died. He always was fighting in his sleep. He'd wake up at least once or twice a night fighting somebody. And he told me one day, he said, you know what? I'm not going to get over these dreams that I'm having. He said, until I die. He said, they're chasing me to my grave. He said, every night I'm fighting somebody. I'm running from somebody. And I'm trying to save my life. He said, it's never going to stop until I die. And that's why he wanted to name the book, Chasing Me to My Grave. And it did. If I remember correctly from the book, I, I think I remember him talking about how there were some years when he only, he was lucky if he got two to three hours of sleep a night. Yeah, he would be up. He'd wake up. And even after he had got sick, it would be so severe on him, he was, you know, he some after he had got really, really sick, he couldn't get around that. But when he would have those dreams, he would be as strong as he ever 
And he would come all the way out of the bed on the mm. fighting and running. And I would wake him up. I had to stop sleeping with him because he was afraid that he was going to hurt me. And, you know, as I got older, when I was young, I didn't worry about it. But after I got older, he got to worrying that he would hurt me while I'm asleep and not know it. So I would sleep in the next room next to him. But I'd hear him and I'd go in there and I'd call him, honey, honey, wake up. Because he would be fighting in his sleep. Mm. And he went to doctors and stuff. And one of the doctors got it where he could go to sleep sometime. But it didn't stop it. He still would have those nightmares. And he, he told me, he said, honey, this is not going to stop until I die. You know, one of the things that... Um that you're reminding me of, and actually also the experience of, of reading his, his life story, his memoir, and reflecting on his journey that I think is important to bring out for um, all of our listeners out there too, is that this, what we've been talking about, was his experience and uh, combination of all the things that happened to him. And the fact that he, from all that, made something out of his life, made, made numerous things out of his life, but certainly with his work. But one thing I think is important for everyone to remember, and that is though this is Winfred's story, this story or some version of it is reflected in many, many, many Black folks um, and their experiences. And I think that's what's important. So no one should look at this as just a little anomaly that Winfred has gone through, I think that it's important to, to realize the, the trauma, the journey, the overcoming, and the wrestling on through, through the, the rest of life is something that the, those strains go deep into the culture. You know, I want to tell you something. You know, uh, the Emmett Till story. That mother never knew what things was done and said to her son. He was a young boy. But if she reads this book, she'll know some of the things that were said to him. These are the things that they say to black young men when they are young and they're about to kill them. It's all kinds of things that they ask them. Mm -hmm. So they was asking him, did you look at this white woman? Did you like her? Do you desire? All type of things like that before they kill you. That's what they was planning to do with him. Mm -hmm. So he's not just telling the story of his life. He's telling the story of a lot of young black men who didn't get the opportunity to, to tell what happened to them before they was killed. Absolutely. The Lord kept him so he could tell that story. And he wanted other people that had went through similar or worse to come out and start talking about the things that happened to them. Quit hiding it. You wouldn't believe how many people was afraid to talk about what had happened to him and knew because of what they thought might happen to them. So they need to start talking about things trying to come to some kind of uh, conclusion or uh, uh, to uh, go back and 
I had a boyfriend that had a father never come home. These are different things that happen. Wimper is telling that story. He's telling his story, but it's the story of so many more That's right. that didn't get the opportunity to tell their story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all of that. And that's, that's absolutely true. Um, let me ask Aaron. Aaron, could you share with us some, some more examples of, of scenes from Winfred's life as he painted them? Uh, just so our audience can get a chance to experience more of his work. It's also reflecting what Patsy's just been talking about. Sure. I'd, I'd like to do that. Okay. Let me just say a couple of things. Um, this is a picture called The Beginning. Uh, Winfred's birth mother relinquished him as a baby uh, to his great aunt, whose name was Lillian Rembert, and she's the woman that raised him. He called her mama, and this is a picture of his birth mother giving him to, uh, to mama, to his great aunt, um, and it was it's a story that opens the book and was a theme that Winfred struggled with throughout uh, his story, and the, the book closes with him finding some kind of uh, peace and compassion for his mother after having struggled for a long time with um, the painfulness of her having relinquished him. And he was raised um, on a cotton plantation outside of Georgia by Lillian Rembert. This is a picture of them in the cotton field. He's riding on her cotton sack. You can see the little boy at the bottom of the picture in the center. That's Winfred. Um, so I'm just going to scroll through a few more of these wonderful vibrant scenes of the cotton fields and you can you'll get a sense of the of Winfred's sense of you know um color movement musicality um creativity and what was that vibrancy vibrancy yes totally and then we'll um we'll go there are a couple of pictures of the scene when um he fled the the a demonstration that Patsy was talking about um, was abused in prison, nearly lynched, and then locked up. And then there'll be some pictures of Winfred and Patsy um, because he met her when he was on the chain gang. And That's we right. may circle back to that, um, especially well, if that comes up in the questions. In the questions, please, please, please go ahead and please go ahead and do all of that. And while we're taking questions as well, yes. though, please please feel free if there are more more um, examples of his work that you want to share. Please feel free to do it. All right, so you can go ahead to the questions and I'll just show some of these as you go along. Okay, great. So let me see. Let me see if I can work our technology very well and find out what the questions are. So I'm going into Q&A. So let's see. Um, someone asks, and this person is anonymous, says, where can someone go to see Winfred Rembert's work in person? Are his carvings in any museums? Well, I could, I could answer that question. There are some paintings in some museums. The High Museum in Atlanta has a painting. The Muskegon Museum in uh, Michigan has a painting. Right now there are two, well, one exhibit just ended, but there's an exhibition of his work in New York at Fort Gansevoort Galleries. Um, Is it, it's, it's still there, Erin? It's still there. It's been extended until oh, mid-February. So um, but another great place to see his work, it's not in person, but great representations of the work is in the book because the book is written with these pictures in conversation with his life story. And there are over 75 examples of his artwork in the book, um, it's including a beautiful the ones piece I'm showing you. It's a beautiful piece of work all the way around there. And also, let me just take this opportunity to, 
to really, really honor you um, for collaborating with and, and putting it together with him. It's a, it's an amazing piece of work, it really is. And he has work at the Yale Art Gallery. Yes. And he got work at people uh, who uh, collect art. A lot of people have his work in their home. Bill McBlain and, and Sharon McBlain has a lot of his work in their shop, in their bookstore. So he, he's got work almost everywhere you look. He's got some work in some museum. Wonderful. The Equal Justice Initiative, Brian yeah, Stevenson's organization right. yeah. in Alabama, is just opening a museum and purchased three of Winford's paintings that will be in the museum at the Equal Justice Initiative. So we are very pleased about that. Okay, so we have a few more questions. Let's see, we come to them. Hold on one second here. Um, okay, so here's a question uh, from Barika Edwards. Um, the question is, what did he think of activism during the civil rights movement in terms of demonstrators and those who were highlighted during the movement? Did he ever get a response from any of the black legislators that he wrote to during his imprisonment on the chain gang? And there's a little addition to this uh, slide. I'll read it just to make sure we have the full context. He talks about how people don't see the humanity of people in prison. What was your first perception when you met him while he was at Reedsville? So sort of two questions, two sets of questions there. I didn't meet him at Reedsville. He was across the street from my house when I first saw him. Right. And uh, I thought he was cute. <laughs> that sure comes out in the book, that's for sure. I thought he was cute. <laughs> that was it. I didn't care what he had done because I knew people that was free walking around depending on, see, that's another thing. Depending on who you work with or who you work for, determine whether you went to jail or not. You, you get me? If you work mm -hmm. with a white White man, you didn't go to jail. You killed somebody, you wouldn't go into jail. And I knew some people who had. So I didn't think he had did anything that was so bad. He was just cute. Is this what he looked like, Patsy? This is his self-portrait. Imagining himself around the time he, he met you. in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you. So go ahead, Derek. What were you going to say? I said he was so cute. He had on some sunglasses, had his hat turned back, and he was just sitting there looking. And he caught my eye. I loved what I saw. <laughs> and tell us about this scene. Mm -hmm. Say so what? This, tell us about this scene. Oh, that's my yard. That's what our yard, that's what my yard looked like. That's my brothers, my two sisters. Then my two sisters are hanging the clothes up. I'm in the tub where you're washing them with the rub bowl. That's my mama pushing the clothes down in the pot. That's my father sitting there about to shopping the, um, the axe. That's how my yard looked. That's how the house looked at that time. Mm -hmm. So Winfred was working on the road near Patsy's yeah. house. Right. And he walked into her yard. This is the scene that he saw, he asked for a glass of water, and that was the beginning of uh, their attraction for each other and this beautiful love story that's really woven throughout the book um, yes. with great, great passion and tenderness. Yeah. 
And by the way, people, just so everybody knows, this is something. This is something that's definitely in the book. Uh, if you come to to listen to it or to read it, this is this whole thing plays out in the book. It's a beautiful thing, actually. I wanted to ask you. Can you see that picture? I can't see anything right now because I've got I've got the chat oh. up. Okay, so we're looking I'll at a picture of Winfred and Patsy standing on the road outside of her house just before they got married. Shortly I think I've after, seen it. After seen Winfred it was released from prison. Yes, I've seen it before. I loved. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I loved. <laughs> I love the scene in the book, which is just a basically a scene from from his life and your life of when he showed mm-hmm. up there and you know you were a little bit running away a little bit and. Your father, I remember your father was like, wait a minute now. What? And then, you know, but he, he was quite persistent because he really, he really liked the petunia that he was struck by <laughs> named Patsy. <laughs> but listen, I want to ask you this question that was put here just so we can talk about it a little bit since the question had come up. Did he ever get a response from any of the black legislators that he wrote to during his imprisonment on the chain gang? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know whether he got, he think Roland Dunham was, what do you name? how you say it? Roland Dunham? Dunham. Dunham. Yeah. He think that he hoped him got out of jail. Okay. But, uh, he doesn't know. We didn't know. really talk about, you know, that aspect of his life. We only talked about each other. And, uh, Okay. You didn't really talk about there, there are a couple other things here. I'm just being listen, we could we could we could definitely have a, a, a chat that we need to maybe have a couple of uh either non-alcoholic or alcoholic <laughs> drinks we can sit around and talk about it, but we don't have all night long to do that. So let me um let me share some of the other questions that you have uh here. And let's see, here's one from uh Karen. Um it says, Can you talk about when and how? He learned to paint, uh, and why he chose leather. That was his medium. He learned how in jail when right. he was in prison. Right. He learned how from a guy called JT, and he right. said JT had three life sentences. And once JT saw how well he could do it, he took his tools away, but he went and made his own tools and kept working. Right. Uh, and the question comes up, too, can prints of his work be purchased? Yes, some Absolutely. of them. Absolutely. Yeah. This uh, is, Lillian. This is TJ the Tooler who made billfolds and wallets in the prison. Winfred saw him doing this, got very interested. And um, TJ the Tooler taught Winfred how to do this leather tooling. And unbeknownst to Winfred at the time, this would become then the medium through which he would create works of art years later. Uh, so it all started... Uh, with the learning the craft in prison. This is his depiction of the scene in which um, he was introduced to to the craft. And Lillian says in the chat, just to dovetail on what you're what you're saying, she says his artwork is incredible, which of course it is. And she says, she asks, are there any artists that influenced his own art? Not that I know. Well, only one, Kobe's. What Rubius. Kobe Rubius. He liked it, his work. She's talking about a Mexican artist named Miguel Covarrubias, who did Rubia. a series of Negro drawings showing Black people dancing, yeah. um, singing, you know, gathering in clubs. And Winfred thought that 
he really captured something uh, genuine that Winford wanted to emulate in his own work. So he did some copies of Copa, Rubi Copa Rubius's um, artwork, and that was sort of getting him started. Uh, mm -hmm. And But he didn't have any formal training in art. He looked at some art books in Phil and Sharon McBlain's bookstore down the street from where he lived um, and was introduced just in that very cursory way to the history of art. But his technique um, and his vision really just came so much from himself, yes. from his heart, from his own head. Incredibly, incredible, you know, kind of a visionary and just brilliant, remarkable. Well, he could always draw. He could do that. He didn't need no training in that. He could draw, but. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, just, he just could do what he do. Right. And a lot of things he could do other than draw. I have. Um, we had the time other, to discuss them all. I have one other thing, Patsy, that uh, I want to share that uh, Marika shared in the chat. He says, I've been so touched reading Winfred's memoir. His dad, my dad, was born the same year as him, and I lost him last year, too. His mother is from America's Georgia. I didn't know how horrible it was. And she migrated to the north. Uh, Wisconsin looks like during the great migration. My dad's sister was named Lorraine and my dad was an artist too. I see so many parallels between their lives. I hope they are both talking to each other in heaven. What reflections did Winfred have about the differences between life in Georgia and life in the North? You knew where you stood in the South. You're guessing when you're in the North. No difference. No difference. You got good people here and you got bad people here. You got good people down south and you got bad people. That is the difference. Knowing who your enemy is and uh, being able to look them in the face and say, I know you don't like me. Here you don't know that. Now you figure it out. I don't want to go no further, but you figure it out. I think you. I think you said it. I think you I think you said it. Uh, what what came to my mind as you were saying that what the the expression smiling faces, you know, comes up too. Just thinking yeah. about, you know, yeah. yeah, that's that's all, all out there. Let me say something in regards to the earlier question about how Winfred felt about the demonstrators. He got Please very. Go very interested in the civil rights movement. Patsy was talking about how he attended a civil rights demonstration. Um, he was inspired by the civil rights movement. He wasn't particularly hopeful that things would really change a lot, but he felt like it was very important to try to bring about a political change. And he was willing to risk and sacrifice in order to do that. So he was a strong supporter of the civil rights movement, participated in some demonstrations, um, one which was, as you know by now from our discussion, very fateful for him. Uh, but I think he really had was full of admiration for what people sacrificed uh, to try to make a change. And one of the inspirations for the book was his wanting to pay tribute to the courage of people who had worked so hard to try to bring about a change for the better under some really difficult circumstances. And he wanted to commemorate them celebrate them and for people to feel proud of what they had accomplished. I'm seeing a question here. 
uh, just just following up on. I'll try to get this one in quickly uh, on what you were just talking about. And hold on. I think it was, let me if I can try to get this over here. Here we go. So the question is, again, from Brika, Brika Edwards, what did Winford think about BLM, that's Black Lives Matter, in terms of how things should move forward and change? We first, he thought we first got to love ourselves. We got to show respect in order to get respect. And right. he felt like we don't love ourselves enough and stick together, band together before tragedy start. Be together beforehand. That was his philosophy. Right on. One more question from Brick. He said, and I think he's asking, well, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna put it out for everybody. How should we tell our stories today? He hears the stories uh, that our stories are being kept secret. And I guess I, I let me let me jump on this first and say I think that um, well this is one way to tell them uh, through whatever talents or avenues or portals or wormholes that we can access individually and collectively. This is a great example through um, his own life experience, how he found a um, a way amongst some ways to tell his story, his quote unquote secrets. Um, and I, as again, I, I say those, those definitely are also reflected in, in other people's lives as well. So this is one way, I think there are myriad ways for us to tell the stories. You tell it in any way that you, that makes sense to you. That's, that's what I have to say. Let me turn it to you guys. What do you think? Stop being ashamed of what your parents had to do in order to get you to where you are. They paid a price. They paid a heavy price. Talk about it. Celebrate it. Embrace it. Don't be ashamed of it. Thank you, Pat. That's, so well That's so well said. For me, yeah. Winfred's collaboration with me really taught me about the power of memoir. The, you know, the conversational, like collaborative process that uh, we experimented with turned out, I thought, to be a very powerful vehicle through which uh, to explore a story and put it together and share it with other people. Um, so I think sharing um, sharing our stories with one another and listening, you know, listening careful to, carefully to what other people have to say is just such an important part of the process of getting those stories out in the world. And also encouraging empathy. Yeah. For anyone and everyone. Yeah. There's so many stories we haven't heard. People have powerful things to say, and we need to start listening. Absolutely. That's a fact. So, I don't know what to say, but uh, have, we, have we reached the fullness of our time at this point, or do we still have a few minutes? You can keep, if there's something else to keep going, you, it's, you're, it's all wonderful. And good. I mean, it's, it's. I know we have to end at some point, and that's a reluctant ending. I mean, we could <laughs> always is. We would always be in a, going to a cafe somewhere afterwards and continue it that way. But, but anything else? I mean, you've all been so eloquent and powerful and beautiful and wonderful in this tonight, um, and and in giving voice to Winfred his his work and his vo his voice uh, too. So, if there's anything else, um, 
anyone wants to put in. I would, I would just share quickly a few quick last thoughts uh, since people took the time to express in the, in the chat that uh, I'll just put out there to folks that we haven't talked about. Polly uh, Kenefick, if I'm getting the name correct, says, so was, uh, so was Winfrey disappointed that it was white people who were his big supporters? Where were his black fans? Oh, take it away, Patsy. Well, there's a few. You you get your fans from where you can. People yes. who are interested. Mm-hmm. The, uh, one of the main reasons black people are not on board all the time is because they've already lived their life. So they don't really want to. That's the part what I'm talking about. Stop being ashamed. Yeah. See, he's not ashamed of where he come from. He's not ashamed of the pain that he endured. He wanted not to happen to anyone else. So he's telling the story. Right. And uh, that's what they got to do. You got to tell the story of what happened and not be ashamed of your life or what your parents' life was like before you could ride in a nice car, before you could have a nice house. Know where you came from. Let's don't go back. See how they're doing the voting? Let's don't go back. And I like what I like what you said too, Patsy. I like what you said before too that he paid the price yeah. to, to be out front, and that's that's just it. Is in the in the yeah, journey yeah. of anyone's life, the price the price is being paid for your children, for people to come after you, uh, to to be able to do that with more freedom yeah. by telling you. Get on the front in a bus anywhere you want. People don't pay the price for it. Why would right. you give it up? Right. So June Blue Spruce also says, thank you. I'm so glad to know about his work and life. Incredibly inspiring and powerful. Uh, Erika says, thank you, Patsy and Winfred and Eric, she means Aaron, for sharing his story in the memoir and this talk today. Uh, Jane says she's written a piece about growing up in Jim Crow St. Louis. Uh, And then Jewel Faison says, Patsy, you are an incredible woman. And this is really true. Sharing your life and love with a man with so many hurts, but so much love to give. Thanks. It really helps me understand so much about loving others. It's wonderful. Uh, and Barika says, one more question. Barika's engaged here. Uh, what happened to the Laughing Barrel? He ran away from the dog. I guess they may still have it down there if you go down. So the Laughing Barrel. Put it back up. Laughing Barrel was this barrel in the town square in Cuthbert, Georgia, where whites would gather and um, as an exercise of humiliation to blacks that were passing through the town square, they would tell a joke at their expense and require them to stick their head in the laughing barrel and laugh. And if people refused to do that, they could be arrested for some made up crime and put in jail. And he He wants to know, did they destroy it? I don't know. I really don't know. But I'm pretty sure you could find one in the woods down there. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't get rid of all of them. They just moved them. Okay. Well, those were lots of, uh, well, he, Rika has one more question. Said so this was common. I think it was common, Rika. I think it was very common. Um, and this, this and more, it just reminds me, I'm thinking about when 
Uh, I had been in London doing a show at uh, the National, the Royal National Theater back in, it was just, just before 2000. And then on, on the way to Broadway, uh, and I think we were, that was in 2000, 2001, but it was down in Houston. Uh, I think it was probably just after 2000. And I remember being in my apartment and one of my castmates, we were getting ready to drive to the theater and brushing my teeth in the morning. There was some strange thing on CNN. I was looking and looking at it. it They were talking about a a man that was, uh, that was a black man that was evidently was walking down a country road and he was tied to the back of a, of a truck and, you know, dragged down the street, you know, to his death, disintegrated. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. We didn't know. I was trying to get conscious. I was listening and finding out that this just happened mm-hmm. and the location of it happening. Now, remember, this was 2000. Was less than 40 miles away from Houston. Mm-hmm. So I only, I share that. I share that to say that, like, again, that like, these stories are not isolated. These, these stories are not isolated. And as we want to move forward and we want to um, build better, you know, it's important to let the truth out, let the truth come out. Yeah, that's Mr. Bird, Jane. That's right. See me for who I am, not from who you think I am. That's right. Get to know me. That's right. So, uh, anyway, I think that uh, it's been a beautiful evening um, of sharing. And we are kind of at the end of our time, I think. Does anybody want to say one more thing? Of course, Patsy. (laughs) You know, at that time, we... We don't have a definite, and you see, you don't need a lead. Well, all of us can't, all of us can't lead, but we need somebody who's willing to step out there like Dr. Martin Luther King did, Malcolm X. We need somebody with a voice that people are here. Somebody come forward, it's got to be somebody who is willing to take that torch and let it burn bright. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Jane asks in the, uh, in the chat, how can we all be contacted? And I would say Jane, probably the easiest way is to get in touch with uh, Richard perhaps. And if there's something important, I'm sure, you know, you can get that information or those, those messages to us through, through there. Um, Aaron, would you like to share anything? Well, I want I wanted to thank you for the beautiful reading that you did and for joining Please. us tonight. It was just such a pleasure to discuss the book with you and to hear your reflections on it. And Patsy also, uh, once again, you're just brilliant. And um, it's, it's just so illuminating to hear you talk about Cuthbert, Georgia, Southwest Georgia, your own experience, as well as Winfred's. So it's just been an honor and a privilege to be a part of this program. And um, thank you very much, both of you, and also Elliot Bay Book Elliot Company for, for hosting us. This was a, a great occasion yes. and I'm very appreciative. 
Indeed. Thank you so much. And I just want to say that I would just want I want to say as well what an honor and privilege um, it is to have been with you guys and to uh, facilitate what we're doing this evening, but also um, to take this journey of Winfrey's and uh, hopefully in all its dimension, um, bring it out for everybody to experience. It's an honor and a real privilege um, to do that. I'm, I'm so pleased uh, to have been asked to do it, Aaron and Patsy. I appreciate you both. We thank you so much for doing it. No, thank you. Thank and you. I enjoy it every time. I'm listening to you as I ride along in my car. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, sister. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, um, I think I will hand the baton back well, to our host. I, and I will just, um, bear, I, I barely feel I can hold it because it's been handled so beautifully and powerfully and wonderfully tonight. All three of you, um, thank you really from the bottom of hearts here. Um, I, um, we've been doing these virtual programs for about 18 months now. And, you know, it lets us c combine people in ways in different places that it would be hard to get everyone in the same room. And yet, um, uh, and so we are grateful for that, but also, you know, can feel some lack that we aren't in the same room because I think tonight um, you can all feel individually as we are in our places, but also collectively um, the weight and gravity and, and also the grace that all three of you have, have done in reading and talking and showing images of Winfred's, um, including for all that heavy you know, material, some of this, um, Patsy's answer, uh, I think would have, I mean, I can imagine the laughter it would have gotten in, in a room um, after it was a setup, it could have had a really serious answer. And what drew you to Winfred? He was cute. Um, that would have, that would have gotten, a <laughs> that would have like people would have, um, there, that was a beautiful answer um, and a very, and so humanly part of all of this. Um, so thank you very much, all three of you. And again, I mean, this, we've had this time, this book has so much of this. I mean, it has Winfred's voice, it has, as as and the work that Aaron's done to put it in, um, in print, but also the images that you've seen some of tonight. And Dion, this has been great to hear you not only reading and but your part in this and um, come see us in Seattle, it's all three of you. But um, yeah, I know Dion's work might get him here more readily with theater and all. But um, reach out, reach out anytime you like. Okay, we've and we we could talk some theater in Seattle too. We we, we knew August Wilson. We had some people who've been here sure. through all that. But um, thank you again, and and also for doing this. It's ten o'clock after ten, back where you all three of you are. Um, but take care and all best wishes and Patsy, uh, special blessings for you and, and what the stories you've told and um, the comment about you tonight that Jewel put in there was, you know, the most spot on uh, comment. I think I've, we've heard tonight. You amazing that an extraordinary you are and I'm glad your some of your story is in this book too. Thank you. And also thank you to Sharon McLean, Sharon McBlain, who is there with you. Um, yes. off, off screen, off camera, but I know none of us is here by our own selves in terms of getting things done and doing things. And I know she's been helping with some of this for you. Um, so right uh, by uh, my side. But we thank Sharon. Oh, thank Good night, everyone. Thank you. Take care. Stay safe with the uh, health Bye. and everything. Good night. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everybody. Everyone be well. 
the Elliott Bay Book Company presented this event featuring Aaron Kelly, Patsy Rembert, and Dion Graham on January 18th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.